Hello, you're listening to the Inclusive Innovators podcast, a brand new series recorded entirely in lockdown. This series is part of the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone, aka Elise, powered by UCL. Elise is an accessible, specially designed community for entrepreneurs who are disabled or whose work focuses on accessibility. This series is packed full of change makers, innovators, and partners all of them connected to Elise. Built on the Paralympic legacy, we're working with several partners, including Disability Rights UK, Plexor, and the Global Disability Innovation Hub to pioneer the development of products and services in and around the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. Each episode, you'll hear from our host, Matt Pieri. Matt founded Sociability, an app which helps disabled people find accessible spaces such as cafes and bars. This app is now available to download. Hi, and welcome to the seventh episode of the Inclusive Innovators podcast series. Today, I'm chatting with Victoria Austin, Chief Executive of the Global Disability Innovation Hub. This is a really important conversation, I think, about just translating theory into practice and the importance of making sure that the policies, the innovations, the products that we build to improve the lives of disabled people everywhere are actually accessible to them, that they're affordable, cost-effective, can be delivered on the ground and can be used by people uh, who are you know, having to solve these problems on a day-to-day basis. And some of the challenges that arise when we're trying to do this you know, for developing countries all around the world. So we really hope you enjoy this conversation and then we're off for the next couple of weeks. It's Christmas and New Year's and so we're taking a break and we'll be back on the 7th of January with an exciting 8th episode for you all. Until then, have a very Merry Christmas and holiday time and look forward to seeing you in the new year. Bye. Awesome. Well, hi, Victoria Austin. Thank you very much for joining um, on the Inclusive Innovators podcast today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I was wondering if we might be able to kick off, if you're happy just to give us a bit of an introduction to uh, who you are and where you're currently working. Sure, yeah. I'm uh, the Chief Executive of the Global Disability Innovation Hub Community Interest Company. We're part of two things which make up GDI Hub. So I run the social business and the rest of our organisation is an academic research centre based out of UCL. Brilliant. Um, and for those who might not know what the GDI Hub is, could you give us a bit of uh, an insight into what, what that is and what you do on a day-to-day basis there? Sure, yeah. GDI Hub launched out of the 2012 Paralympic Games. We are a coming together of the organisations and communities that delivered the legacy from London 2012 on disability inclusion uh, with partners who are determined to take disability innovation to the next level across the world. So we're made up of our founding partners, UCL, and two other universities and a host of creative and uh, community organisations. We're based out of uh, UCL East on Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. And our aim is to build momentum for disability innovation for a fairer world. We do that in five ways. We have a programme of research. We have teaching, both in terms of formal masters, education, and also teaching for uh, corporates. We do uh, um, programs to test what works around the world. We run inclusive ecosystems for innovation in East London, in Kenya, and an AC Impact Fund. And finally, we advocate for change. Currently, we're operational in 33 countries around the world. Our portfolio is around 50 million pounds, and we have reached 4 million people since we started two years ago. Awesome. 
well, sounds like some really impactful work going there at a, at a very impressive scale. So we'll jump into a little bit more about the GDI Hub in a second. Um, but one thing we often do to kick off uh, the conversation with everyone we have on board is to get a little bit of a sense of how they started. So we call it your innovation inspiration. Can you give us a bit of the backstory, Vicky, as to how you jumped into this space? Uh, and I guess what drove you to start working, um, you know, disability innovation specifically? There's two things. I'm an unlikely innovator is the first. I think I was, uh, I'm born and bred in public, private and voluntary sector organisations. So I, I worked for three different mayors of London, driving disability inclusion in and around the games and leading a big programme afterwards. And I was not intending to set up a company. But what we were doing uh, on disability innovation came from the kind of the this opportunity of having really bright minds working to a known goal so this mission of having the most accessible Paralympic and Olympic Games ever the most successful Paralympic Games ever with more athletes from more countries than ever before that changed the way we look at disability became the the mission of 2012 and by having such a great group of people that brought in new partnerships that had clarity of objective we were able to to drive real change and as I started to talk to colleagues around the world about what we've done, I was hearing, you know, this is, this is really innovative. This is a great idea. You know, this idea of putting communities at the center of your work, this idea of listening to users of assistive technology, this idea of genuinely building diverse partnerships to drive change. This is something we want to do and how do we do it? And so my unlikely innovation story really starts there. We, we went to UN organizations like the World Health Organization who said, you know, come and tell us how to do this in other places. And, and because of that, we, we set up the GDI hop. So I guess my inspiration story is a combination of kind of that moment when I saw the Channel 4 billboard that said, thanks for the warm up after the Olympic Games had finished. And I realized that London had set out to and had agreed, you know, ha had to some degree achieved a kind of change of tone, a change of action on disability. It's kind of somewhere between there and the moment when I realized that other people weren't doing that and didn't want to know how. That's the moment when I realized that we had a responsibility and an urgency around translating this so other people could do this work too. Yeah, brilliant. I think at that point, particularly about, you know, spreading out what is often sort of seen as a very niche or minority kind of focused area of work is really important, particularly given the spread of, of disabled people uh, across populations. Um, if we can take a step back further though, why, like what has sparked your interest in, in disability specifically? Like how did you get to working on the, the kind of Paralympic campaigns and things like that? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was, it was always a call to social justice. So I worked for a lot of years in um, social equity and in gender equality. Um, and disability equality was always part of that process. And I think, you know, the Paralympics provided an opportunity to do more, and therefore we did. And I think uh, it's, it's, it's important that we remember that disabled people make up 15% of the world's population. 80% of those people live in the global south, so in low resource settings. At the moment, we know that a billion people need access to assistive technology, and 90% of them don't have access access to that assistive technology to be able to live their lives like be you know members of the community go to school go to work that means they don't have eyeglasses wheelchairs walking sticks basic things that are necessary for us to drive forward our sustainable development goals and that number's only going up right so this is a critical problem it's a intractable challenge um, 
And it's something which is really rooted in the idea of basic human rights. Like how do we deliver a world where we have fairness and opportunity for all, yet 15% of the population is consistently left behind? And that to me isn't good enough. And so let's see what we can do to try and change it. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think a very compelling, <laughs> compelling case when you put it like that. Um, so out of interest, uh, I'm not sure whether you have a disability yourself or have an interaction or like have kind of lived experience of disability at all. I find it quite difficult to answer that question. I have to um, diagnose uh, ongoing conditions, but I find it difficult to answer because I spend a lot of time working in slum settlements with people who don't have access to a wheelchair mm -hmm. and have polio. So it's difficult to say, you know, what does that mean? Where is that binary? I understand that it's important for campaigning terms to have a kind of a notion of what, what a disability or what an impairment is and isn't classified as in a particular country. And of course that changes no matter where you are. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's kind of, it's always interacted with context. So I think Tom Shakespeare, the academic um, who works at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine talks about disability being the interaction between your kind of physical impairment, your psychological ability and also your environment. Sure. And I think that makes a lot of sense. So, um, so, so, so yes, I have two uh, impairments myself, but um, you know how disabled I am compared to other people. I, you know, I find it quite hard to to make that binary suggestion. Much like, you know, gender and sexuality, I think it's probably more of a continuum than a binary. Yeah, fair enough. And I think one of the key questions that you know we've been asking people involved in the space, particularly, and I think this plays out specifically when we're talking about say the global south for an organization that's based in london how do you ensure and like what sort of stuff that you guys at the gdi have are doing how do you ensure that you know like it, this is a super participatory process and this is you know a sense of these are the problems from the people that we're working with and these are the solutions that would help them rather than sort of you know what could be i think you know arguably seen as, as this is an intervention from uh from a developed country into a space and we take what works in in london and we bring it to different countries such a good question. I think um, we founded our, ma our major project is uh, Assistive Technology 2030. It's funded by the Farmer and Commonwealth and Development Office, the, what the artist formerly known as DFID. And we, um, we operate that not on our own in countries, but with local organisations always because of that reason, right? So, you know, it's, it's not helpful to parachute in solutions which are proposed to work in the global north and place them in the global south. An example um, is that we work quite closely with uh, organizations in Kenya to set up Innovate Now, which is a uh, acceleration program for innovators working in the AT and inclusive innovation space. Our first winner of the Innovate Now program is a guy called Lincoln who, uh, he is based out of Nairobi and he himself grew up in Kibera, one of the biggest settlements in, um, in Nairobi, in Africa. And he, uh, you know, we can't tell him what product he needs to invent for people that are working in and around his life. He, you know, he talks about, you know, road conditions, access to school, access to education, why the type of chair he invented was important for them. And we wouldn't seek to ever address that. What we seek to do is hold space for him to do so. And I think that's the power that you have if you have access to or a willingness to generate partnerships, a little bit of resource and a kind of an understanding that both in design terms. So if you ask the engineers that work in our teams, 
you can't design good products without getting users involved in the design process. Whether you think about it in political participation terms, you can't change the world if you're trying to do it on behalf of someone else. Or whether you think about it in terms of just good practice of getting bloody good ideas de developed and delivered, you need people who are part of that process, who understand it best, and that's usually the people who experience it firsthand. And so for all of those reasons, our board is made up of disabled people from three continents, we are led by um, you know, a, a pretty diverse gang and we seek to continue to employ people who are based all over the world. I and mean, our director in Kenya, Bernard Kiara, um, himself a disabled person and is leading our work um, there. So I think hopefully we try to practice what we preach. That's not to say we always get it right. Yeah, no, I think I think it's definitely important to highlight, you know, those processes and how they work on the ground, because I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of good intention and sometimes it is just in, like you said, it's the practice of what you preach and how it plays out. So it's awesome to hear like about the proper integration, I guess, like, you know, in the spaces that you're working and the, with the people that you're working with. And I think to your point of like, you know, it's an ongoing thing that evolves. And at the end of the day, it's supposed to be because it's designed to help people and their people's needs and preferences and wants change. Um, and so what, what works today might not work in two years time. Out of interest, I was wondering if you could give us a bit of an insight to some of the kind of developments or whether it's you know specific AT inventions or whether it's kind of programs that have sort of spun out of those processes where you've gone into a space, like you said, you've given people who, who are in that environment the space to, and the resources to kind of think and create. So I wonder if you just give us a, some, some tangible examples from, from the you know, few years that GDI has been running. We, we sort of describe disability innovation as a process. Mm -hmm. So we, we describe it as a process of kind of addressing um, the intractable problems that sales people face by, you know, bringing together new partnerships for better solutions. So sometimes that's a product, sometimes it's a policy, sometimes it's a, you know, an activity. And so we see our innovations kind of in those ways. And one of the cool things that's coming out of UCL right now is one of our um, PhD students out of IIT Delhi uh, and UCL, they're working together to produce a new type of surface, which enables uh, blind and visually impaired people to be creative and sort of draw and then and, and kind of re-clean and then draw again different um, symbols and, and uh, items on the surface. It's a kind of a new material that hasn't been invented before that's gonna have, hopefully we think quite a lot of uses. So that's pretty cool. Lincoln in Kenya, did his uh, wheelchair design and that's something which we're um, really proud of and supporting. We also um, we've just launched an AT impact fund which is a four million pound investment to test whether impact investment can work in getting ideas to practice in this space and the first thing we're looking at is um, I can't reveal too much but it's in the hearing aid space uh, and thinking about how mobile phone technology can be used to diagnose and prescribe hearing aids that work because lots of times people don't buy into or buy hearing aids because they don't think they work they can't um get access to that knowledge and information about how they work similar piece of work are out of uganda on some low-cost spectacles which are hopefully looking at how the uh, recycling industry can be used to kind of translate into a lower cost version of, of spectacles needed uh, in east africa so there's a lot going on we, we also do policy innovation so i wouldn't want to assume that all we do is is things because i think too often people look at inclusive innovation and then point to you know the, the most exciting new high-tech piece of thing and say you know well done you've done this great thing I don't really care about that because unless people can afford it and it makes their lives better, it's really of no interest to me. I mean, it's important and 
great that people are doing it. And loads of my colleagues at UCL do this as their day job and hurrah. But unless it's kind of gonna really change people's lives, maybe not. And so, for example, access to a walking stick in rural Africa, which costs a couple of dollars, but simply isn't available because the markets don't exist for walking sticks, is something that could change people's lives. And, and so this is why I go back to the idea that what is a disability innovation isn't a new shiny fresh piece of tech. It's something that enables a disabled person to participate in a way they could not previously participate. And so we're doing work with governments as well to look at things like how they can improve their capacity to deliver assistive technology around the world. And, and also looking at lower cost inventions like um, prosthetics. So in uh, Jordan and in um, Uganda, we're looking at low cost um, digital manufacture of prosthetics. And in Northern Uganda with humanity and inclusion, we've just produced some uh, brand new approaches to 3D printed orthotics for refugees. So we're looking at how distributed manufacturing can work in that sense. And actually, you know, UCL and a, a, an AT, I'm sorry, an innovation agency Brink are leading with us on a piece of work on COVID action, looking at how that distributed manufacture uh, you know, locally, digitally manufactured products, in this case PPE, how those networks can be built globally in order to, to get better protection to countries around the world. And we intend to piggyback those networks to look at how we can then use that digital manufacturing distribution to um, support AT needs too. Yeah, awesome. A, a ton of stuff in there. I mean, I think that particularly, that was um, a nice preemption of my next question. But essentially, uh, there's a lot of, you know, buzz and I think nice fanfare around, like, advanced robotics and a lot of kind of very, you know, future high-tech innovation in the disability space. Um, and a lot of the chorus from the disabled community often is, you know, a ramp uh, would have been fine uh, or something like that. So, you know, um, and I think exactly particularly this point of, of when you're doing so in the global south, there's a real danger that the super high-tech new material also just never makes it there because it costs 10 times the, the living wage. So um, I guess just to kind of uh, sort of drill down to that point a little bit deeper, do you see GDI Hub having a particular focus? Like, is it a focus on the kind of ideation, but then not the distribution of products? Or is it more so on, you know, kind of the, the practical, making things accessible and affordable that, you know, are great innovations, but might not reach places? Or like you said, is the policy, policy intervention? It sounds like you guys are doing a lot. And I was wondering if you have a prioritization or a place that you start or you want to focus or how you kind of, you know, when there's so many things on the plate, how you kind of go about actually, you know, getting, getting the work done in, in each of those spaces. Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, everyone who innovates or sets up a company, we're now four years old. We have gone from turning over 100,000 in 2018 to turning over 5 million this year. So it's a steep learning curve, right? So we're, we're figuring it out as we go along. We're learning by doing, um, and we definitely don't have all the answers. Um, that said, uh, the inclusive innovation space is also revolutionized in the time that we've been going. Uh, things like LEs just wouldn't have ex existed a couple of years back. So it's important to recognize that um, we travel in a, in a changing landscape. That said, um, our work so far has always been drilled down on disability innovation for a fairer world. So we are 100% committed to disability innovation that creates social change. And therefore, it is always the kind of bottom of the pyramid that we're interested in. Um, how we do that in terms of you know, the balance between do we ourselves produce products? Do we create the ecosystem for others? I think 
And at the moment, we're more focused on the kind of um, the B2B bit, if you like. So we're more involved in the creation of the ecosystems than we are the development of the products per se. Um, and that's largely because uh, of the of the 40 million, of the 50 million we're currently in profile for, a massive chunk of that is, is the, the work on assistive technology, where we are an agency that is both um, driving and delivering um, kind of systems-led change largely. So I think it will evolve and change over time and we'll, we'll flex it. Um, but I completely agree with you, you know, that a, a ramp solution is fine if it works. And I says, so our definition of kind of, of innovation is, is better than before. And, and I think that's important. We, we say that disability innovations need to be usable and used by the community that they're set out to help and better than before. So I think oftentimes people say it's new, but it's not better. And so why? That said, we're based in the Department of Computer Science and we are working with UNESCO, uh, who have a chair on AI. And we've just launched a massive call on AI for assistive technology. And new technology has a great role to play in enabling disability access, whether it's ubiquitous mobile phone use, and we've done loads of work on that, or whether it's um, you know, using AI to, to figure out how we find new solutions um, to intractable problems. So I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not, I'm agnostic to whether the tech is high tech or low tech or new or old, as long as it helps us, uh, is usable and used by disabled people and better than before. Yeah, I think that's a great mantra and a nice framework on how you can sort of prioritise which things to, to double down on and, and sort of follow through. And I guess it does come back to that nice point at the start around like getting disabled people into that process of, of identifying, you know, what actually they need or want, um, which is important. So a quick, a quick kind of shift then to, to, I guess, like a more practical question. But the GDA Hub, um, you know, one of the, uh, I guess, central parts of it is also the MSc in Disability Design Innovation. That's... Um, you know, based in London. So I was wondering if you can give a little bit more insight into the sort of, yeah, the thinking behind that. And I guess like, you know, as a very clear way for people who might want to get into this space, it's like a very clear pathway into, into you know, working in the area, but also GDI Hub. Just give us a little bit more um, of a kind of sense of, I guess, one, what, you know, the conception of the MSC was in particular, but also, you know, what people might be able to get their hands dirty with if they were sort of to look at that um, as a next step. Yeah, so when we started, we realised that tech for development was a big deal, uh, but hardly anyone had considered disability in that space. And disability innovation was something that wasn't well, you know, researched. There isn't a discourse around it in the academic literature, and there is, isn't that much in the practice-based literature either. So we set ourselves the task of both creating that discourse and also teaching it at the same time, which, uh, as practising it. So we kind of set ourselves a pretty bold mission, but it paid off. So last year was the first year of our master's program. We're building an alum of people who've been through our work and they are from all sorts of backgrounds. So last year we had people, you know, anthropologists together with computer scientists, together with engineers and actually the space in the middle, we called it the magic in the middle. Uh, that space that, that was created was awesome. And actually Kate Matic, who won an award for her design um, and was one of our students last year is now an inclusive innovator in the Alice team, I think. So it's kind of, it, it's about growing the community. We, we um, we've doubled our intake this year. We were nominated for an award last year at Tech for Good. Um, and we are continuing to work closely with Loughborough and London College of Fashion to find those kind of spaces. And 
it's actually, it, it's really exciting to listen to and watch the students come on the journey where they share each other's knowledge and learning, like anything multidisciplinary. In order to create change, we need to find new spaces. And this is all about finding new spaces and getting people involved in that kind of critical space where you question what you already know and come up with something better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, awesome. And out of interest, what sort of people are you, you know, when you sort of said you've, you've doubled the size, like what's the kind of target, uh, you know, person, whether it's background or kind of experience or sector, or is it pretty agnostic to all those things? Yeah, you need a first degree and you need, a, you know, a decent first degree because it's a UCL master's course, right? So, and you, um, there's a couple of scholarships. So we've been grateful to work with Snowden Trust for a couple of scholarships for disabled people to access because we know that, you know, fees are a barrier institutionally and structurally disabled people less access to income. Last year, we supported um, a disabled person from the Global South to come to London and do that work with us. We're looking for anyone with passion and determination. You don't have to have a certain background. I myself am a social scientist. Um, most of our team are engineers. Um, and that is something which we are really willing to be open, open to. So if you're interested, um, get on board with the UCL website and log on for next year. We're teaching virtually for the first time because of COVID. Uh, so we'll, we're also thinking about how we make some of that open access to people that can't afford either the time or the the energy or the money to come over to London for masters. And that's a nice segue, I guess, into how like COVID in particular, and I, but I guess the broader kind of conception that, you know, um, public health, uh, you know, pandemics and, and sort of the kind of infrastructure that we've been living in uh, are now, you know, changing because of those two things. Um, how has that impacted, I guess, the GDI's hub work or at least like areas of priority in terms of thinking about disabled you know, innovation um, a lot of the kind of conversation from the disability community, at least in the UK, you know, particularly around COVID is like one, a lot of the assistive tech that like has, would have been super helpful to them years ago is only now being implemented because there's a broader demand for it, which, um, you know, has its concerns, but also is a positive moving forward. Um, accessible tech. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then yeah. the kind of second point of, of also that a lot of kind of consideration for disabled people still sort of falling by the wayside in terms of, um, you know, how the, the public, the broader public health response to COVID interacts with those who are, you know, um, who have disabilities or, or are more kind of at risk because of the pandemic. Um, so I was just wondering if, if that has become, you know, something on the agenda for you guys to approach, particularly given your work in the global South. So I think um, the first thing to say is that it's pretty well understood that disabled people are faring less well than most uh, as a result of COVID. So whether that's the numbers of deaths or long-term impacts in the UK, or whether that's the, um, the stigma and discrimination that's experienced by disabled people whose lives are seen to have potentially less value um, in, in other places, or, you know, or whether it's the assumptions about the accessibility of a move to online and how people react to that, both in terms of physical um, ability to access those services. And as you say, there are some benefits around accessible technology becoming more accessible and more ubiquitous and some benefits around flexible working, which our team wrote about actually. But there are also some downsides that like people with long-term mental health conditions and, and, and the such like, it, you know, the isolation can be very problematic. So. So the first thing to note is that the impact of COVID and the response to COVID is not equally felt. 
Um, our work in Sierra Leone um, on, on the team, Dr. Maria Kett, who works with us um, as a co-founder on Ebola, teaches us that disabled people's uh, response to crises, such as Ebola or in this case COVID, in the Global South context, often are left out of information, often issues of stigma or kind of understanding of what is needed can be quite confused or convoluted, recognition of different um, access to, to services being secondarily impacted. So the impact of people dying from Ebola was small compared to the number of mothers that died in, in labour, for instance, because they weren't able to access the hospital. So there's all these kind of knock-on and secondary effects before you even get to the economic impact. So disabled people and other poor people are being locked out of the labour market in a place where jobs are now more scarce than before. And I think these are very real realities. That said, I'm a firm believer, you build the bonfire and you wait for an opportunity for it to light. And so if this is a chance to build the bonfire, what, what do we need to build? Okay, what, what are we wait? We're waiting for a spark of change. This is definitely a spark of change. So what do we do? I think we use the opportunity to drive forward all of those changes to technology to make them accessible to others and to all. We drive forward on the opportunity to get flexible working and, and other arrangements in place. We, we use this as a chance when government know that they need to distribute manufacturing of PPE to tell them that also it's not that hard to print orthotics or, or to get walking sticks distributed or, or, or manufactured locally. Um, so we, we think about, and we are doing all of that, and we, and we think about what the opportunities are to, to kind of reflect on um, the way that the world is changing. So World Health Organization, and we're, we're part of this initiative, are looking at something called Tele-AT, which is, you know, okay, so disabled people can't access services, peer-led support, mobile phone-led information, and actually some remote service provision is the reality. So let's make it good. Let's make it better. And actually, for those people who have no services before anyway, because they live in a country with a weak system that isn't able to afford it, perhaps this is better than before. Great. Yeah. And I think that point about, um, you know, really making sure that the opportunity for change when people implement that change, it is actually a much broader set of changes that, you know, impact people who are typically forgotten about, you know, in those kind of decisions is really important because I think this opportunity to, you know, to steal one of the kind of government slogans, but to build back better or whatever it is, I think is a huge opportunity that doesn't often come around in a wholesale way. So, I mean, that sounds really important uh, work and hopefully there's, you know, it's being heard by the right people. Um, I think your point about stigma is a really important one. And so I wanted to kind of shift to, I guess, uh, some of the work or how the GDI Hub thinks about, I guess, the perception of disability and, you know, the importance of kind of like improving that perception for, you know, both in the global north and the global south, but how your work ties into that. It's a massive issue, isn't it? And I think, you know, in a way, the way that people self-regulate their own participation based on stigma is as, as important as the stigma that other people place on disability. So in a lot of the communities I work in, um, I was in 15 countries last year. So if anything, COVID has given me a chance to stand still and catch up a little bit with myself. but. In the countries that I've been lucky enough to work in, I see um, that stigma operates not just to silence people, but to encourage them to silence themselves. And I think 
you know, we're working with Leonard Cheshire Disability on a project that is uh, challenging stigma um, and trying to understand what undoes that. We're also working with a company called Shajaz, which run a, um, a magazine amongst young people in East Africa, which is um, introducing characters with disabilities and trying to understand the difference, trying, trying to understand how people's attitudes shift. Um, we're also working with Loughborough University, who are doing an amazing project with the International Paralympic Committee, which will screen the Paralympics in up to 42 African countries for the very first time. And they've wrapped around that piece of work that's focused heavily in Malawi to, um, to kind of really look at how parasport can overcome stigma in ways that we've seen, but isn't really that robustly documented as a kind of a, a proof point. So, but I think all of that, you know, it, it, but what I've seen is that stigma is built up over long periods of time and dissipates in seconds. You know, in Sierra Leone, they had a, a character on Big Brother who had a visual impairment and it changed things. It changed the way that people were operating um, uh, their, their prejudice. And, you know, the same could be said of that, that moment when I saw the Channel 4 advert uh, just after the Olympics when it said, thanks for the warm up. You know, those moments culture um, and the role of kind of cultural practices and cultural industries makes such a difference to quickly quickly overcoming people's people's prejudice and i think loughborough trying some of that with um with cultural activities radio programs theater in the community and stuff through their work in Malawi. great yeah i mean that all sounds really interesting i mean to play devil's advocate on the point about like stigma building up over time but dissipating in seconds um I'd sort of push back and say, I think it has a tendency to then rebounce back because it's entrenched. So um, yeah. out of interest, what sort of kind of key other players do you see needing to step into this space in order to ensure that that kind of dissipation, whether it's through a kind of a flash event, like you said, a Big Brother or, or some you know kind of a global event like the Paralympics, actually, how do you make sure that that is entrenched? And obviously organizations that are dis disability focus like GDI Hub and, and Leonard Cheshire, et cetera, are important, but how do you get mainstream yeah, exactly. cultural institutions into that place? Exactly. I mean, the VNA are a founding partner of ours, the Victorian Albert Museum alongside Sadler's Wells Theatre. And, you know, we're actually doing a piece of research to map the disability inclusion approach that London 2012 took and what enabled it. And so we're trying to understand what the kind of the, the pieces of the jigsaw are that enabled us to get to that point. And I think that's important because it started with set a mission, set the objectives, make sure everyone knows what the objectives are, have some disabled leaders leading those objectives, have scrutiny, have tools that other people can use so that they know how to contribute, have partnerships that are wide and broad that everyone knows how to do their piece, but it isn't tightly managed. Have moments where you celebrate success, have consequences for not trying, not consequences for innovation failure, but consequences for failure to innovate and have kind of measurements of this, however bad the data, <laughs> and kind of keep going around that circle. And of course, what a colleague of mine, Paul Bekel, told me was that mission, that doesn't get set by mainstream organizations. That gets set way back by community organizations who know what the issues are, who've been saying for decades, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to make better. And so for me, if the world, for example, is to take the commitment to assistive technology seriously, what we need to do is start from what we're intending, which we have, we've set up a global partnership on assistive technology, AT scale, made a commitment to increase access by 2030 for half a billion people. 
We're now setting in place the processes that will make that happen. We need to measure it, we need to celebrate success, et cetera, et cetera. So no, I mean, GDI Health by itself cannot, will not, will never be able to deliver disability inclusion, assistive technology to a billion people, um, or any of the other things that are so desperately needed. But I hope we are part of that drive for mission setting a part of the kind of the ability to set that in train and, and actually if you look back over the last three or four years i'd love to say we've played a small part in disability innovation and, and inclusive innovation being more mainstream certainly in ucl we have yeah yeah i mean entirely agree and i guess that agenda setting i think is you know hopefully really thoroughly underway so who would your call to action be to those mainstream institutions to get on board with that now uh, UN agencies, governments. The UK government's not doing a bad job of leading the way on this and actually they're about to produce another disability strategy. I worked for Boris for eight years um, and I have opinions but uh, you know if if they're able to continue driving forward um, a disability strategy which continues to lead on disability in the global space, good. I mean there are all sorts of issues and, and questions around the operation of that at home but there's no question that the department for international development as was by committing 20 million pounds to assistive technology globally is leading the world on that piece of work and i hope they will continue to do so great yeah well fingers crossed um i think if we can then start to shift a little bit more we're, we're sort of getting there but a little bit more forward facing um so victoria we asked you at the start about like your innovation inspiration and how you sort of got into this the question we often try to end on is sort of what people's innovation imagination looks like so GDI hub's been up and running for four years where do you see this hopefully you know being in in your work in, in being in 10 15 20 years time we've sort of hinted a little bit at some of the stuff that you know is hopefully being set in motion um, to kind of you know sustainably change in the long term but yeah where would you like to see you know GDI hub and, and your work specifically in in 10 years time I think that we will continue to do really good deep research where we have partners in University of Nairobi, IIT Delhi, increasing connections in, in other um, places and I think they will become sort of mini hubs in a way and I, I would hope to see that grow. So I'd hope to see us have kind of regional or, or continent based um, kind of affiliate organisations doing similar work and, and driving the change. I'd love to see uh, the mainstream pick up the, the commitment and that to be really measurable. So I'd like to see some delivery on that commitment on AT globally, for instance. Um, for us as an organization, we don't have plans to become larger. We've never intended to grow ourselves. You know, my innovation imagination in the long term is that we don't need to exist. And I guess, you know, that's an odd place for an innovator to be. As I said, I find myself in an unlikely space as, as the chief exec of a, of a company, but I think I'm driven by the need to make change. And whatever we need to make the argument for that change, we'll continue to do so. Great. Um, and I guess in a kind of a similar sense, uh, you just mentioned then obviously that you're, you've sort of stumbled a little bit into this, this role in a perhaps an unlikely fashion. If you were to look back now at, you know, Victoria 2.0, uh, all these years ago, kind of making the journey into the into this space. What's one piece of advice you'd sort of give them from the kind of wealth of your experience today? And to a similar, you know, a similar Victoria 2.0 out there facing that decision today. 
Um, so two things. Uh, I don't know how honest to be. <laughs> I, uh, your team are everything. Choose them wisely. Choose them early. Grow with them. Let them grow with you. That's that's the kind of biggest thing. Okay. Because if you can't grow a team that 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 provide the best of you, then uh, then you can't do much. Mm -hmm. um, so, so so value your team beyond everything else. I think. And in the early days, in the striving to deliver impact, I think we worked ourselves to the bone. And that had a, an impact on people. And, you know, so walking your own talk is really important. You know, you can't drive a disability organization and make people work so hard. They're so stressed that they're not enjoying their job. But it's really hard because you're prioritizing, you know, what do I need versus what does that person in that slum without a wheelchair need? And so that's tricky, right? That's yeah. a hard one. <laughs> um, but I think, I think Martin Luther King said it first, and I think Obama had it placed on a rug in the White House. And if it's good for him, it's good for me. So the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. But my God, it's long, right? So we need we need our energy to keep going. Um, so that's the piece, and that's the bit. And that kind of relates to the second part of this, which is, so I, I came to this as a as Victoria 1.5, definitely not 2.0. And mm -hmm. therefore I baked into the company that I made some of the things that Victoria 2.0 baked out of Victoria 1.5. <laughs> so how do you avoid, you know, baking your own kind of, how do you make the company bigger than yourself? Like, bigger than what you can imagine for yourself. And I think for me, sometimes I struggled to articulate the value of what GDI was doing um, because that's something I find quite difficult, right? So that this is a function of two mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. I, I, um, and I found it quite difficult to articulate our value. And you know, not everyone's on your team. And so kind of knowing when you need to really be strong and when you don't need to have that fight, I also find quite hard. So I think clarity of, of mission and purpose is something which we've always had in a gut sense, but it's taken us till quite recently to kind of write that down and codify it. And that codification is necessary because while I might know what my gut reaction says, how does my team know what my gut reaction says if it's not codified and clear for them? Yeah, great. I mean, thanks for sharing that with us. And I think on a final point then to maybe... Um force you to do some of that um what's the one thing that you're most proud of from the last four years we could celebrate it now that's so hard <laughs> you know i think i could say reaching nearly four million people i could say raising so many dollars towards the goal but really i think um I think we've had integrity through the whole piece. So we may have got it wrong sometimes in terms of how broad we've tried to impact or, you know, working with people that weren't quite on the same page or kind of not standing our ground or we've got many things right as well. But you know what, we've done it all with integrity. At no point has anyone been minded to take decisions that were not in the greater good, in the interest of the greater good. And I'm proud of everyone for that. And we've stuck together. Me, Kathy, and Ian founded this company and we're still going. 
<laughs> Great, We're glad to hear, and hopefully it goes on for a lot longer. Awesome. Well, thanks, Victoria Austin, for having um, the, taking the time to chat with us today. It's been a pleasure to, to learn a bit more about your work and the, the fantastic stuff happening at GDI Hub. Um, and yeah, wish you all the best with that for the, for the future. Thanks. Do you want to take part in the Elise program or be part of our community? To find out more, visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash enterprise forward slash Elise or give us a follow on Twitter at Elise 2020. You can find out more about our virtual and physical workshops on social media, funding, app development and a masterclass on accessible comms. Captioning will be available for each session. We'd also like to thank our Elise partners, including Barclays Eagle Labs, Capital Enterprise, Disability Rights UK, Global Disability Innovation Hub, Hackney Council, Here East, Greater London Authority, Inclusion London, London Legacy Development Corporation, Loughborough University London, Plexel, London College of Fashion, and UCL. This podcast is powered by Sociability.